All right, good to have you here. I want to read a couple uh, uh, responses because last week we showed hospitality. We applied what we've been talking about, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And we said we should be abounding in hospitality. And we said that opportunity was through our double time. So I just want you to read some of the evaluations, some of the expressions that uh, and Jordan and Nikki were able to uh, benefit from that. And as well as Anna Marie West and, of course, our partner Richard Lewis uh, did the training. But here's some things that you can see. And what I want you to do is I read some of these. I want you to think in terms of this is what hospitality could do. This is what happens when people abound and work in the Lord. So I just want to say right off the bat, and if you go on our church Facebook page, you can see the people that volunteered and were involved. Without the involvement of our office personnel as well as our volunteers in the, in the, in the child care, we just couldn't have done this. Feeding them, taking care of them, and it was fun. But here, here's kind of the atmosphere. Here, here's some of the responses uh, to what hospitality does. Uh, they were rating the learning environment provided by our church down here in this room. Great atmosphere for learning, nice setup for interaction, good technology to help with the learning process. And then regarding child care, this person said, we did not have to worry about the kids at all. The child care was excellent. Our kids had fun, and we were able to concentrate and learn without distractions. And that's exactly what we prayed for, amen? God answers prayer. Uh, on the child care again, this really helped us, and I'm so thankful for it. I don't know how we would have attended without it. I'm so thankful because three day, these three days were so beneficial. Without that child care, they would not have been able to attend. Uh, another one saying, I really like the classroom setup. That's all a part of hospitality. Uh, this one says, I like the barbecue. We definitely want to support that missionary. Uh, the learning environment, again, thank you for the drink and snack table. Thank you, Dana and crew. I guess Dana was in charge of that. So Dana, you get, where's Dana? Dana down here? There you are. Dana, your crew did an excellent job. Uh, I only saw you, so I'm not quite sure what the crew was, but uh, uh, maybe you were doing, Dana, you were doing such an awesome job, they thought there was a crew. And so maybe that was it. Uh, let's see. Uh, loved all the food. Best hotel pre- breakfast I've ever eaten. Such a clean and bright environment with comfy chairs. See, this, you guys get this all the time. You should be thankful. Thankful. Thank you for taking such wonderful care of our child. Uh, our, our daughter became comfortable and loved the staff. Help her to, have famili- to see familiar faces every day. Excellent snacks and drinks for the whole day. Great hospitality. That's what they see. That's what they saw. Healthy snacks were appreciated. Thanks for doing name tags. Anxious to read the book. We gave them a a book to develop their spiritual life. Great sound. Great lighting. Technology that worked. Didn't interfere. That's amazing. Um, Todd filled in for you, but that's what you're utilizing every week here. Uh, many thanks to the support staff and for all the hospitality and graciousness. On the childcare, I saw the women actually getting down on the floor or at the table playing with the children. It was thoughtful to have gifts for the children, and the women were willing to work with individual needs and special requests. So better, and as far as our lunches provided, better than I could have expected. Thank you. That's what we want. Better and surpass their expectations, treating them in a manner worthy of God to send them forward. And I just want to read two. I'll just read two. Uh, from because all that hospitality was to make the learning environment. And I, I just want to tell you, one of them uh, even said, and I wish I, I don't know which one it is, uh, but just staying in a nice hotel makes all the difference for a conference. Because if you can go back and if you can relax, if you can, in the environment that you're in, you can just concentrate. And uh, that's just exciting. So here's recommendations on the training they actually get, or evaluation of the training. I think this would be very valuable for anyone going to the field, and even if they were indecisive as to what field to go to. I learned a lot about myself, which I found out is key to helping me understand another culture. It also helped me define my role and plan. Here's another missionary. Regardless of the other training you may have had in college, this helped bring clarity to the details and overall cultural study. The system Dr. Lewis gives helped me to understand where to begin from rather than being overwhelmed, which is no small thing for missionaries. 
uh, tackling a, another people group. This course definitely challenged me in my thinking. If my desire is to have staying power on the field, then this would be a good step in preparation. I wish I would have had this before going, but I'm thankful I got it now. The concepts presented have created a framework in which I will be reevaluating and refocusing my view of the people and place God has called me to. We need more training like this. Amen. And listen, again, it goes back to your faithful giving that we can underwrite, that we can do this, but also your faithful serving and volunteering because I, I can coordinate, I can get, uh, you know, work with Richard, we can work on getting it happening, but I can't do the child care, I can't do all the, the, the logistics on the food. And, uh, and certainly we need the funds to be able to get the best. So it was just outstanding and I, Number one, attribute it to prayer. Praying, praying, praying. And God graciously answered those prayers. So, abounding in the work of the Lord in order to send people on forward on their mission for God certainly works. And I hope you, you can celebrate in that. Well, what we're talking about today is small group community. Notice what it says at the top of your notes. It says, because one day soon, one day soon, it could be today, we will be transformed together with Christ by rapture or res resurrection. I don't want you to ever forget that chapter 16 is connected to 15. And here's the reality. Because this could happen soon, we should be always abounding in small group community. Not just showing hospitality to others, but small group community within our church. And we're focusing on this now from this chapter because our grow groups sign-ups are going on right now. So if you haven't signed up, you can sign up today and get involved in small group community. Look again at 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 24, because this is where we're concentrating for this aspect of greeting one another with a holy kiss. Look again at 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 24. The churches of Asia greet you. So whole churches are greeting one another. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily, enthusiastically, earnestly, emotionally in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Have you done that yet today? We're trying to figure out to know if we have and what that involves. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Greeting one another with a holy kiss, which is right in the midst of those verses, is the language of fellowship and community. And so what we looked at last week was what's in a kiss according to the Bible. And we just kind of did a theology of kissing. You probably had never heard that. Now you have a theology of kissing. And I kind of did a chart for you and summarized what we looked at. There's basically three kinds of kisses in the Bible. The first one we looked at and, and, and what we learned was that a kiss is a cultural expression of adoration. And you can just go down that column. It's an act of worship. It's a way of showing two things. It expresses total submission to our God. In Psalm 2, it says, kiss the Son. And it's an expression of humble devotion. And the classic example is the woman uh, who was mainly just described as a woman of sin who, broken by her sinfulness, embraces the Savior uh, by faith, comes, from, uh, comes up to Him from behind, and just repeatedly, passionately, intensely, and passionately, I mean by emotion, nothing sexual, kisses His feet as an act of total submission and humble devotion. Then we looked at a kiss that is a cultural expression of affection. So you got the kiss of adoration, which is an act of worship, the kiss of affection, which is an act of fellowship. And we saw two examples. One, an expression of radical reconciliation where the father embraces and kisses the prodigal son upon his return and repentance of the sin that he had committed. And he repeatedly, intensely, emotionally kisses his son, welcomes him in. And then an expression of sorrowful separation where we saw that the Ephesians of, of, of Ephesus or the elders of Ephesus are saying goodbye to Paul thinking they will never see him again, and more than likely he could be, come a martyr, and they 
they kiss. And if you notice on that column, it says the most common expressions of the kiss of affection, which is with family and friends, is the hello greeting, and we do that in our culture, the farewell goodbye, we do that in our culture, a special blessing, not so much do we do that, but it's, a, it, it's part of the idea when, when a father would give a blessing to his children and, and, or, or to their family, he would say the blessing and show a kiss of affection. And then it was also a holy affirmation. So at times of anointing, when Saul or when, um, when uh, Samuel the prophet anointed Saul as king, he kissed him. In other words, you are being set apart for a special work, and I affirm you. I affirm you in that. I accept you in that. This is the essence of greeting one another with a holy kiss. Then we looked at, and, and I, I couldn't really work this out in the chart. Really, the, a kiss is also a cultural expression of celebration within marriage. This is really underneath the kiss of affection. Okay, so in other words, marriage is built on friendship. Biblical marriage is built on a sense of friendship and a sense of social oneness. And so within that is the act of partnership with one's spouse. It's a biblical expression of, uh, of passion that God affirms, that God recognizes. But it is an expression with biblical limitations. And notice those two limitations. For marriage... You don't do share the kiss of celebration with anyone other than your spouse. And all married people said, Amen. Amen. You don't kiss other people in that way other than your spouse. And for singles, I'm not going to say you never kiss. That's not something the Bible you know, addresses. But wisdom says this. The Bible does address this, this limitation. Listen. Never kiss outside of marriage in a way that defrauds the other person by promising more than you can deliver in the sight of God. Or arousing passions in the other person that you cannot satisfy before a holy God. Turn your Bibles, First Thessalonians chapter four. Those two principles are very clearly laid out in First Thessalonians chapter four. So look at First Thessalonians chapter four, and I want you to see verses one through ten. And and I'm going to show you. The connection, once you understand a theology of kissing, then you begin to see it in the Bible and you begin to see these, 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 uh, these principles are associated with one another very clearly. So let's look at it. First, first Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. Finally, then, brethren. Okay, brethren. There's that family. That, that family fellowship idea. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, how you ought to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. There's our word, always abounding. Abound in how you live for God. Okay? Grow in it. Increase in it. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Set apart. That means set apart for God's purposes. Set apart from sin unto God. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And I think the best... Uh, the best interpretation of that verse is know how to possess your own body. The vessel is your body. Know how to, to uh, control and use your body in relation to the opposite sex, in relation to the same sex, in a way that is holy and pure and abstains from sexual immorality. Not, verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles do who do not know God. In other words, when you know God, you live morally. When you don't live morally, it's an evidence of not knowing God. You say, well, I know God. Then live what? Morally. 
And that no man... Now, here's verse 6. Here's the idea. So when, when if a young teen or an older single, I don't care who it is, says, hey, where, what's the lines? What can I do? How much making out? How much petting can I do? Uh, well, here's the answer. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in this... Because the Lord is the avenger in all things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. The key word there is defraud. Don't promise more than you can deliver. And so, you know, well, anyway, we're not going to get into all that, but that's the idea. And that's a great principle to be teaching. Don't promise more than you can deliver, and don't do anything that arouses passions in the other person that you cannot satisfy in the light, in a way that is honorable and holy before God. Now, I hit on that because these are the discussions we need to be having with our teens. They're awkward, they're difficult, but they're the discussions we need to have. They need those kind of boundaries. They And they won't, may not like it, they may not enjoy the talk, but inwardly, their moral compass will be rejoicing because now they, they have a moral compass. Because you're telling them. And think about when you were a teen and those passions and those hormones were raging. Yes, you were inclined to satisfy them. But your conscience, which God gives to every person, is also crying out what's right and what's wrong. And we live in a time where now more than ever, no one knows what's right and wrong. There are no cultural clues. The cultural clues are to go, 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 experiment, check out. It's horrible. It's horrible. And you've got to be able to have these boundaries. Now, notice what he says. God's the avenger. And he says in verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Again, my purpose is to be set more and more apart from sin unto God. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. As believers, we're without excuse for for uh, uh, without excuse in terms of abstaining from uh, immorality. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit, the Holy One, who will enable you, convict you, and warn you of when you are going too far. Now, notice what he then does in verse 10, verse 9. He goes talking about the wrong use of the kiss of celebration, the wrong use of sexual, sexuality. And now he says, now as to the love of the brethren, there's the kiss of affection. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Abound in it more. The love of the brethren, the kiss of affection. So there you have those three kisses. But there's that fourth kiss that we we kind of tackled a little bit. The cultural uh, a kiss can be a cultural expression of deception. It's an act of destruction to others. When you take any of these kisses and do them in a deceptive way, you're destroying yourself and you're destroying those who you deceive through that kiss. And basically, the kiss of deception is an expression of false affection and false adoration for selfish motives is what it comes down to. And I almost guarantee you, everyone in this room, Almost everyone, I would bet, has either received the kiss of deception and probably given a kiss of deception where you kiss someone feigning either physically for false motives, for selfish reasons, or you show friendship to someone in order to get advantage over them. That's just how our flesh is. So look at that. In that column, we see five kinds of this kiss. Some kiss deceptively. Uh, to selfishly get what they want from others. That was Jacob kissing his father Isaac to steal the blessing. Some kiss hypocritically to use others for their own selfish purposes. Absalom was at the gate greeting the people of uh, Judah in order to overthrow his father. Some kiss treacherously, using friendship as a cover to get close enough to hurt their enemies and get revenge. Joab literally did this in order to kill Amasa. 
And some kiss seductively to satisfy their own lust with no regard for holiness. And we see the adulteresses, adulteresses, not saying that right, plural, there's only, sing, oh, there's only a single one, okay? And, uh, and that can be a man or a woman, but, it, but in Scripture it's typified uh, by the adulteress. Uh, some kiss idolatrously in their worship of man-made idols. And I, I want to look at this a little more. We talked a little bit about, again, as Americans who are very kind of non-social, very individualistic, we don't kiss a lot of things, okay? But in other cultures, a lot of people and a lot of things get kissed. And it is an aspect of false worship. Here's what I want you to see. Uh, God said this to the prophet, of El- the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19.18. He says this, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So somehow, in the worship of the false god Baal, and I'm sure we, should, we could research, study it out and find out what it was. You would kiss the idol or you would kiss. And in the, in the worship of Baal, child sacrifice. So here's a day where we're talking about the sanctity of life. Uh, there are spiritual values. There's even false worship in the killing. We're sacrificing babies to worship at the God of our own comfort. So don't think that when you're talking about abortion, there, there are spiritual dynamics. And, and we may not go out and sacrifice our children to a false god who is an idol, but we certainly in abortion and in many other ways, even ways that we are tempted here in this room, are sacrificing our children for the worship of our own gods of lust, convenience, you know. And avoidance of consequences. So, it is involved in false worship. Job, in the book of Job, says this, His faithful worship of the true God is affirmed by saying, I have not blown a kiss of false devotion to the sun or the moon. Again, a lot of times what, what what's going on here, literally they would blow a kiss to the sun or the moon in worshiping them. And in a sense, what they were saying was, if I could live on you, if I could, li- if I was there on the moon, if I could live on the sun, I'm worshiping you, and I would kiss you in devotion and submission. But since I'm down here and you're up there, what? And Job says, "Look, I'm suffering, but it's not because I'm an idol worshiper. I haven't blown the kiss to the sun. I haven't blown the kiss. And in a sense, you're blowing a prayer, a prayer of of blessing from the God and to the God. And then finally, in Hosea." He says this, Hosea mentions the kissing of idols made out of silver in the form of cows uh, in the midst, again, of the child sacrifices to Baal. Hosea 13.2, And now they send more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. And they say of them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. All this is, is a distortion of the kiss of adoration that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. They're submitting to a false god, and they are worshiping and devoting themselves and showing it by kissing it. And we talked a little bit about this last week. That still goes on today. You go to to many. You go to uh, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Roman Catholicism. You can go to temples and shrines and cathedrals throughout the world where they are kissing the altar. They're kissing the, the, the communion bread, the holy host. They kiss that. They kiss the priest. They kiss the pope. They kiss the pope's ring. They kiss icons and pictures of saints. And they kiss uh, relics like a piece of wood from Jesus' cross that will be encased in a glass. And they line up for, for, for uh, thousands of feet to, to be able to kiss And what are they doing? They're showing false adoration. They're showing false affection to false gods. So this is a very real real aspect to our lives. And it's very interesting, isn't it? That in the Bible, we're to be kissing people. But as you drift from the teaching of the Word of God, you begin to kiss things. Also, we are to greet one another, all God's people. 
But as you drift from the Bible, you start not kissing one another, greeting one another with the affection of brothers and sisters in Christ, and you begin to only kiss the holy men, the priest or the pope. So it's very interesting that the farther you get from Revelation, the more you get into ritual and religion, and you begin to worship the wrong things. So instead of having fellowship with God's people, you begin to worship certain men, certain religious leaders, and certain religious things. So, one last observation on, as you look at those all four of those types of kisses in the Bible, each one can be done passionately and intensely with great emotion. And when I say passionately, nothing sexualized about it. But in each of these examples, I can give you the the lady who kissed the feet of Jesus. The word used for her kissing is intense and repeatedly. She was just full of gratitude, love, and thankfulness in her adoration. Are you full of that kind of emotion today as you worship? We go up and down. Not every day is that way. Not every week is that way. But is your adoration, your worship of God this morning, as we come tonight and pray, are we going to be emotionally, passionately into it because we're into our God? And then the kiss of affection. That father embraced the prodigal son, and the Bible says he kissed him repeatedly, passionately, emotionally, intensely. Why? Because he was such a loving, forgiving father, and he so much wanted to communicate. It says in the book of Acts that the Ephesian elders grabbed Paul, and they kissed him repeatedly, passionately, emotionally, because they loved him so much. And then, of course, in Song of Songs, in the Song of Solomon, it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That, it, we're in the Hebrew now. It's not Greek, so they don't use that word. But kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. That's a lot of kissing going on. Okay? And it's passionate and it's emotional. And yes, there it's romantic and sexualized because it's within the confines of marriage. But the sad thing is, that even the kiss of deception, even the kiss of deception, in order to deceive others and ultimately uh, see their destruction, it too can be full of emotion. And that's exactly what we're going to see with the most tragic kiss of deception. What is the most tragic kiss of deception in all of history? It's the Judas kiss. The Judas kiss. And this is the most tragic use of a kiss in all the Bible. The Judas kiss was a demonic distortion of both the kiss of affection and the kiss of adoration. And so I want to show you this. Look, Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Look at Mark chapter 14. And I want you to see there. Uh, let's read this passage together. Mark 14, look at verse 43. We're looking at Mark 14, verse 43 through 46. Notice what it says. Immediately while he was still speaking, that is Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve. Mark wants us to understand that the man who betrayed Christ was one of the twelve. A close person. A person who knew Jesus, came up accompanied by the crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Judas knew exactly what he was doing. It's deception And we know from the Bible that Satan also influenced him. It is demonic deception and distortion of the kiss. And notice what happens, verse 45. After coming, Judas immediately went to him without hesitation, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the word for kiss there is that intense word of kissing repeatedly, emotionally. Oh, Rabbi, either side of his cheek. Oh, 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 oh. 
Oh, what deception. Oh, what hypocrisy. Oh, what treachery. Knowing, knowing that he was betraying his Lord. They laid hands on him and seized him. Now, it was common for a disciple to kiss his teacher and master. So when you were in a rabbi, disciple, master, disciple, it was common for him to for a disciple to come and say, oh, master, and to kiss their master. And it's very interesting that in both Mark and Matthew, Judas addresses Jesus as rabbi. So he's doing a cultural expression of affection and even of uh, honor to one's teacher. But he's doing it deceptively. Now, why did Judas Judas kiss Jesus repeatedly? Why was it so emotional? Why was it so involved? It wasn't because he felt uh, he was feeling guilt. It wasn't because he was all because of what a lot of people teach about Judas is that he was all filled with anguish and and he wasn't sure of what he was doing. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. Here's what the text doesn't say, but here's what I would I would suggest based on what the text does say. He was making sure the arresting party knew which person to arrest. It's dark, it's not clear, and in those days you didn't have CNN and 24-hour news cycle. People weren't familiar with Jesus' face. Okay, you, you, Not everybody had seen him. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, out of these 12 people standing there, because he was gone, so it was 12, he's saying, look, this is the one, and I'm going to keep kissing on him until you know. When he says, Rabbi, greetings, Rabbi, it wasn't for Jesus to hear, it was for the arresting party to hear, so they knew who to arrest. So, what we know about the Judas kiss is it was a demonic distortion of both the kiss of affection and the kiss of adoration. Why do I say that? Because Jesus himself, after Judas kissed him, Jesus addressed these two areas. So let's take a look at it. The Judas kiss was a distortion of the kiss of affection. How do we know that? Matthew 26.50. Turn to Matthew 26.50. Because what you see in Matthew 26.50 is Jesus' response to this kiss, the Judas kiss. And here's what he says, Matthew 26, 50. And Jesus said to him, what? And Jesus said to him, Friend, friend, do what you have come for. Friend. They, then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. In other words, was Judas a friend or a foe? Well, the answer is what? He was both. He was both. That's what made it a betrayal. Jesus is saying, and he uses a special word for friend that's only used three times in the New Testament. All of them are in Matthew. And it's not the word, the typical word for friend was also the word for kiss, and it was phileo, friend, close friend, close emotional friend. He uses a word that says, you've hung with me, but you really don't know me. You've been one of my disciples. You've been with me for three years. But in reality, we really don't have a relationship. Friend, what are you doing? What have you come for? Do what you have come for. In in other words, there's an element of rebuke in this. Jesus is saying, you've been with me, but you don't really know me. And now the evidence of that is your betrayal of me. What's interesting is you see the use of this word friend in the other two times in Matthew. It speaks of people that are taking advantage of a privileged relationship. He's saying, look, you had great opportunity. You had great privileges. And you are taking advantage of that. You are betraying me. Now do what you have come to do. I know your heart. I know what you're doing. Wow, powerful stuff. So let me ask you, isn't just, isn't just Jesus who is betrayed by friends? 
It isn't just Jesus who invests in people for three years and then is rejected and betrayed or stabbed in the back. Every one of us in this room probably has had that experience. And if you've been involved in ministry in the local church for any length of time, you've had that experience. How do you respond to such betrayal? How do you respond when you get your Judas kiss? Well, I want to show you two passages from the book of Psalms. Because the Judas kiss was predicted in the Old Testament in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55. So, none of this was catching Jesus off guard. Psalm 41, let's look at 5 through 12, and Psalm 55, look at verses 12 through 23. What Judas did that night was predicted in Scripture, what it meant as a distortion of the kiss of affection is very clear in these passages. Look at Psalm 41, 5 through 12. Psalm 41, 5 through 12. Let's pick it up in verse 5. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? That's exactly what they were saying of Christ. And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. That's exact. Judas' heart gathered wickedness. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him. That when he lies down, he will not rise up again. In other words, we're plotting against him, and we're going to bring him down. He's going to go to sleep, and he's never going to wake up. Sounds like the mob. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. That is a prediction. That is a, that's why I said, friend, here's what you've done. We've eaten together, and here you are against me. But look at verse 10. How should you respond? But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. How do you respond to the Judas kiss? You put your trust in the Lord, you maintain your integrity, and you wait for God's deliverance. Good stuff. And yes, Christ was crucified. Yes, He was beaten. Yes, He was buried. But first, three days later, He triumphs over the grave. He triumphs over death. He triumphs over His enemies. And one day, He's going to come back and judge each and every person who has betrayed and rejected Him. Wow, that's how you do it. Uh, Psalm 55. Look at Psalm 55. Psalm 55, 12 through 23. Notice what it says. Psalm 55, verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. This was fulfilled in Judas's kiss of betrayal, he who had, we who had sweet fellowship together, think of all the fellowship that Judas had with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there for every miracle. He was there in those intimate prayer times. He was there in those powerful times of teaching. He had all that association with Jesus, but no relationship of eternal life. We had sweet fellowship. We walked into the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. As for me, okay, that's what I want to see happen to them. But as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Wow. Look down. Look down to verse 19. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits in throne of old, with whom there is no change and who 
and who do not fear God, He has put forth His hands. Look at verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. How do you respond to the Judas kiss? You put your trust in the God who reigns above. You trust Him, and it is hard. You've got to get your eyes off the betrayal. You've got to get your eyes off your own hurt. You've got to get your eyes off of how much you invested, and now you're getting treated this way. And you've got to get your eyes on the Lord and maintain your integrity and wait for God. And I promise you, He will always come through. He will always come through. And either those who betray you, they get convicted, and they come and they ask forgiveness, or they remain hard and the Lord will deal with them. But in any, in any case, you release them to God's judgment, and you ask for God's mercy on them, and you wait for God's grace to enable you to deal with the Judas kiss. Well, the Judas kiss was not only a distortion of the kiss of affection, it was also a distortion of the kiss of adoration. The kiss of adoration. Because here's the other response in Luke 22. So turn your Bibles, Luke 22, 47. Here's the second thing that Jesus said after the Judas kiss. The first one was, hey, you're my friend, yet you're betraying me. This one, he identifies, Jesus identifies himself. Look at Luke 22, 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. See, he was going, I think he was separating himself from the crowd. And I think he was trying more deception. Hey, uh, Rabbi, he kisses him and he embraces him. Oh, hey, I didn't know this crowd was following me. You know, I, 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 was, I was just faithful all the way through. Man, I was as surprised as you were, Peter, that this crowd came. I don't know. We don't know for sure. But I think it's interesting that, that that's what was taking place. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, you're my friend. You're betraying me, but I am the Son of Man. In other words, what he's saying is, I am the Son of God. And you kiss me now, not as a kiss of adoration, not as a kiss of submission, not as a kiss of devotion, but you are rejecting me as your God, as your Savior. You're using this act, this cultural expression of adoration, and you're distorting it in rejecting me. So there you go. We don't want to kiss that way. We don't want to worship that way. We don't want to fellowship that way. So in closing, what's in the kiss of affection? So here's these four kinds of kisses we looked at. We're looking at the holy kiss. We're looking at the greeting, the kiss of greeting. There are three things in it that I want to give you a little application that we'll explore more next week. And here's the first thing. What's in the kiss of affection? There's kinship. Kinship. A cultural way of showing affection to one another as members together of God's family. When they kissed one another in their culture, family and friends kissed, how much more in the church should we greet one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Amen? Now, in our culture, we're going to look at next week, what's the cultural expression? Don't worry about how to do it. Worry about why you do it right now, okay? Why do I greet people in this church, in this class, and in my grow group? I greet them fundamentally because they're my kin. Because we're family. And that's what family does. You hang around with Bill Howe much, he talks family. He talks southern family, hillbilly family, right? And Bill is always saying, I have to do certain things because it's family. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But you know what? All of us need to be Billy and talk about, there's certain things I do here at Glenwood because we're family. We're family. And that's what family does. We greet one another. So you got to get your head... Well... Okay, you got to get your uh, you got to get your heart off yourself, and you got to get listen. You got to get outward, and we got to greet one another because they're family. That's what you do with family. Think about it. This idea of greeting one another with no limitations, one another, 
is saying, we're all family here. And when we see, when, when family comes over, what do we do? We kiss on them. We welcome them. We invite them in. And when family leaves, we're sad to see them go. Well, there you go. There you go. We'll, we'll address that. We will address that. And that's what's the problem. We have a dysfunctional culture where the breakdown of the family, which means that all the more important that we practice this in here because we have people coming in that don't even understand how to treat family. Are you with me? Showing affection to one another as family together. Think about it. Men and women, young and old, married and single, masters and slaves, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, black and white, Republican and Democrat. It doesn't matter. We are in the family of God. Amen. And we greet. We greet. The key verse is, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. That is the verse for dealing with people in the church. How do I deal as a man with women in the church, as my mother and as my sister? How do I deal with men in the church as a woman, as my brothers and as my fathers? And that keeps it at a level of purity. You don't do anything with others who are not your spouse that you wouldn't do with a brother or sister. But again, with the breakdown of our society, as perversion becomes normalized, we can't even assume those things. Secondly, so let me just say, how do you greet members in our class when you come here? First of all, do you greet? Second of all, when you greet them, do you greet them like family? I think we all have some growing to do. Amen? Secondly, fellowship. The kiss of affection was a sign of fellowship. It's a cultural way of greeting one another to express mutual love to one another in Christ. It's love. In, in, uh, Peter calls it, instead of calling it a holy kiss, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And kiss is the word phileo, and love there is the word of agape. And so what it means is I greet one another as my brothers and sisters with sacrificial, unconditional love. We express our love for one another. So how do you greet people in a concrete, practical way? Because Christ, God loved us with an agape love that gave His only begotten Son in flesh, physically came to show His love for us. So how can we greet one another in concrete, practical ways? And here's one application of that. And it's the three-foot rule. It's the three-foot rule. Look, we're never going to love one another if we don't greet one another. So here, commit today to the three-foot rule. That if I'm within three feet of anybody, I'm going to greet them. If I'm within three feet... I'm telling you, some of you could stand one inch from someone and you wouldn't greet them. Not because you're a nasty sinner, not because you're a mean person, but because that's just you and you need to break out of that. Okay? Jackie told me she went to a funeral with a hugging family and she had enough hugs for the rest of her life because some of us are that way. I said, you know, some we're introverted, but you got you can't disobey scripture. You can't disobey this command based on personality. All right, good deal. Three foot. I'm within three foot. You got to put down the technology. You got to get your head up and looking for people. Smartphones don't last for eternity. People do. Amen. That's what you got to do. And then finally, worship. Worship. And we'll, we'll explore this much more next week. But the kiss of affection is a cultural way of worshiping our triune God as we experience community with one another as a congregation or a small group. And the key verse I'll end with is 2 Corinthians 13, 12 through 14. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. 
But how do I do this? If I'm introverted, how do I do this? If I don't know what to do, how do I do this? He tells you in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Isn't that awesome? Well, it's not awesome because it eliminates our excuses, right? But here's the reality. Have you experienced the love of God? Show it to others. Do you have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let that grace empower you. Do you have the fellowship of the Spirit that makes God close to you? Share that closeness with others. We'll explore the theological, the doctrinal, the practical ways of doing that next week. But I just want you to see that how you greet or don't greet one another is a sign of kinship, it's a sign of fellowship, and it's an act of worship. Now, that's the challenge, isn't it? And I'm telling you, just as I read those illustrations from those missionaries, it's those little things that make a difference. It's those little things. It's the way we greet. We have foreign exchange students here in our church that doesn't know Jesus. We have people that will visit as guests that don't know Jesus and who haven't been touched in months physically by another human being. We have people that have never heard I love you from their dads. We have people that don't know who their mothers are. We have all those kind of people and the greeting them with a holy kiss We'll know how to do that culturally can make all the difference in the world. Amen? I think we have some growing to do. Would you join me in always abounding in this? Growing, stretching, learning. Would you join me in that? Or am I on my own? I can't greet everybody. But I can greet everybody that comes within three feet of me. How about you? How about you? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. And uh, we're humbled and convicted. We need to grow. We need to abound. We need to excel still more and more in greeting one another by the grace of Jesus with the love of God in the fellowship of the Spirit. Lord, help us to see and evaluate and grow and change in how we welcome others into our space and how we reach out to others to show them the kinship, the fellowship, and even, yes, the worship in how we greet one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, before you hit that door, greet somebody.